When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From New York City and from Oahu, where I'm at a wedding. Apologies for the Skype quality sound and any wild chickens in the background. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. On this episode of SVU, in which we're discussing Bruce Willis's infamous 1991 film, Hudson Hawk, we're kicking things off with five minutes and 32 seconds of Swinging on a Star. Would you like to swing? We weren't going to do this bit, Matt. Like to swing on a star. Carry moonbeams home in a jar. All right. We're not going to get to 532 at this pace, Elson. It's very important that we stick to the time. You know, sir, you are no Danny Aiello. Let me just say that. Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And inspired by Hudson Hawk, we were going to devote this episode to the home state of both Bruce Willis's character in the film and my co-host here, Matt Singer. Yes, New Jersey. And then we changed our minds and decided to do Vanity Projects instead. Because, you know, while the cinema do New Jersey really could be a genuinely interesting topic, the Kevin Smith of it and all, uh, talking about Vanity Projects just sounded like too much fun or pain or both. Um, but first, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are newly available on demand. Matt, you're up this time. What have you got for us? My first pick is one of the more, I thought, surprising flops of the summer that I thought deserved a little better than it got with audiences and at the box office. And that is Alien Covenant, the latest prequel to Alien from the director of Alien, Ridley Scott. It is a continuation of the story from the last prequel, Prometheus, a movie I did not particularly care for, actually, with an almost entirely new cast. 
The one main holdover is Michael Fassbender playing both a new android character named Walter and also David, his android character from Prometheus. And the what scene, a holdover he is. <laughs> and what a, indeed. And the scenes between the two Fassbenders, Fassbendai, I guess, um, are easily the most interesting and entertaining in the picture. And <clears throat> I'll say it is, it is a little odd that this, this alien movie actually seems more interested in the robot characters than the aliens, what they mean, what their implications are about the nature of existence. It's almost as if Ridley Scott wanted to make a Blade Runner sequel, but he couldn't get the rights, and so instead he made an alien sequel. Except Ridley Scott is currently producing a Blade Runner sequel, Blade Runner 2049, which comes out in October. So I don't know. I'm not really sure why he took this approach. I do know I enjoyed this movie more quite a bit more actually than Prometheus, mostly because of the Fassbender stuff. Some of the stuff that I had problems with about Prometheus, namely the characters being kind of dumb, making dumb choices, it's still present here. But I am, I have to say, becoming more convinced, as some people argued with Prometheus, that it was all by design. This is in some way part of Ridley Scott's commentary on the state of the human race um, and the sort of its inherent stupidity. Um uh, Maybe that is what it is. I'm starting to become convinced of that fact. Further proof. That's definitely how I feel, I yeah. will say. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like in some ways, if the first Alien trilogy is about this kind of destructive parasitic life form that is the xenomorphs, uh, the, the new trilogy is kind of setting up that the destructive parasitic life form is humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I can – I kind of see it. And for further proof, proof of humanity's stupidity, just look at the fact that Alien Covenant made only $232 million worldwide. That – shocked me the the transformers the last night made 586 million dollars worldwide and i mean even by this that's low by the standards of a transformers movie i suppose so maybe that's a sign of improvement but the fact that even the worst transformers movie still made 350 million dollars more than alien covenant that's not a great sign so that's uh, that's alien covenant it will be available on vod on august 15th also available on August 15th is a movie you mentioned at the top of the show, Allison Chuck, a new biopic uh, about boxer Chuck Wepner, the man known as the Bayonne Bleeder, which is maybe the greatest uh, boxing nickname of all time, and the man who once famously fought Muhammad Ali and almost went the distance. He did not quite last into the 15th round. I think the fight was ended by a TKO in the 15th round. And if that story sounds vaguely familiar, as Allison mentioned earlier. Uh, Chuck Wepner was the inspiration for Sylvester Stallone's Rocky, and that is why I didn't see this movie, but why I am interested to see it. How do you make a Chuck, Chuck Wepner movie when Rocky already exists? It's a fascinating sort of thought experiment. Uh, you mentioned Liv Schreiber plays Chuck Wepner. The cast also includes Naomi Watts, Elizabeth Moss, and Jim Gaffigan. So that is Chuck... It is available on VOD on August 15th. And finally, a film whose existence I did not know about until this week. And I am completely fascinated by, and I must see it. Uh, It is a film called Unleashed. Are you familiar with this film, Allison? This is not the Jet Li movie, Unleashed. I have never heard of this film. All right, I'm going to read you the plot description. In Unleashed... A cosmic event turns Emma's dog and cat into two perfect guys. (laughs) 
forcing her yep hold on forcing her to reconsider her outlook on dating hilariously work out her trust issues and ultimately learn to love herself and you can find the trailer for this movie online um the the actress playing Emma is it I don't know how to pronounce her last name it's Kate is it Mikuchi Misuchi I don't uh, know but I know who you're talking you're, about she was yes. in don't think twice she's a, a charming talented she's a Garfunkel and Oates Garfunkel and she's Oates one half of correct yeah. she is a very talented actress she is the star um, Sean Astin uh, of many movies The Lord of the Rings Goonies fame is sort of a a sort of platonic friend who's pining after her. And then the guys who play her pets are Justin Chatwin and Steve Howey play the cat and the dog turned human. And I don't know for certain that she sleeps with her pets as humans in this movie, Allison. But based on the trailer... There's a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, there, there, I have a lot of questions. And I, I am shocked the movie exists. I'm mesmerized by its existence, by its, by its cast, which is pretty good. I I encourage people to find this trailer online, unleashed, watch it, ponder its existence, and then seek it out on VOD. I know I will be tracking this movie down because I have to watch it. I cannot believe it's real. Unleashed. It is available on VOD on August 25th. You figure this out all by yourself? Yeah. Good plan, Junior. Uh, we got about uh, five minutes and change. 532. Swinging on a star. You know, they invented something while you're inside. It's called a watch. Hey, Tom. What? Shh. One, two. One, two. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry movies, home in a job. And be better off than you are. Or won't you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long funny ears. He kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny and his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. They're all back on. And be better off than you are. Rather be a fish. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you choose our main review by voting on one of three options. And here in the dog days of August, we gave you three options widely regarded as total dogs. That would be the Bruce Willis singing cat burglar comedy Hudson Hawk, which is on Hulu, the Jim Carrey numerology thriller, The Number 23 on netflix and the will smith steampunk action western wild wild west a finer slate of films there never was and while the race was close for quite a while hudson hawk held on to the lead the thing you have to know about hudson hawk is that it was directed by michael Lehman and co-written by daniel waters and that was the team behind the brilliantly caustic 1988 dark teen classic heathers which means the movie is no mere flop from nobody's. It comes from real filmmaking talent. Of course, one of the other writers, the one with the story credit, is Bruce Willis, who also happens to be the star. Hudson Hawk is Willis's first and thus far only writing credit. 
1991, Willis was in the full flesh of fame, Moonlighting, the TV series that had established him as a comedic actor, had finished up in 1989. He'd made the transition to movies. He'd had Die Hard in 1988, Die Hard 2 in 1990. Um, Look Who's Talking, in which he voiced a baby, had been a well-received hit. Look who's talking to, less well-received, shall we say, but still did okay financially. And Willis had released two albums. Uh, The first one, 1987's The Return of Bruno, had a single that went to number five on the Hot 100, Respect Yourself, a duet with June Pointer of the Pointer Sisters. (laughs) Yes, I know, we've forgotten this, I think. Yes. But Willis, in other words, he was in a place of power. Willis was in a place to give a push to the project he wanted, and what he wanted was Hudson Hawk, a project he dreamed up with Robert Kraft uh, before either of them hit it big. A movie in which he plays the world's finest cat burglar, who's released from prison after 10 years and immediately pressured by mafiosos named the Mario Brothers to steal something from an auction house. Luckily, he and his partner in crime, Tommy Fivetone, played by Danny Aiello, uh, aren't rusty at all as they show off in a heist in which they simultaneously sing a pop standard, which allows them to stay in sync even when they are not together. Did I mention this film starts off in Renaissance Italy? <laughs> uh, it's, it's title character and some other characters uh, soon end up in present-day Italy, uh, entangled in this kind of Da Vinci Code-style conspiracy that involves the CIA, a manic billionaire and his wife, played by Richard E. Grant, and an indescribable Sandra Bernhardt, uh, and a Vatican agent, played by Annie McDowell, who is both Willis's love interest and a nun. Also, it has a sense of physical comedy that is, like, right out of Looney Tunes. Matt, uh, when Hudson Hot came out, it was called a colossally sour and ill-conceived misfire by critics, unspeakably awful by other critics. It bombed at the box office, in part because it had been marketed as an action movie. So let's not beat around the bush here. Does this movie deserve the loathing it received at the time? I have to say I don't think it's quite as bad as its reputation. I think it is bad, but I don't think it is a colossal misfire, whatever those expressions were. It is absolutely a vanity project, and I think some of the problems within it, which we can discuss, stem from that fact. But I have to say I didn't like despise it. I and I, it's funny, I, I, I don't think I've ever sat through this entire movie before, but I think I've tried and, got, and hard, I had a hard time. I don't know if I'm just, I don't know, getting nicer in my old age or whatever it is, but I didn't, I, this movie did not, you know, it, I didn't sit there like cursing its existence or like pondering the choices I'd made in my life that took me to this place where I was now watching <laughs> Hudson Hawk. Like I didn't hate it that much. I couldn't really defend it too strongly. I can't really encourage anyone to see it, but I also didn't feel like it was a true disaster that, you know, was amongst the worst films I had ever seen. What about you? Did you uh, think it lived up to yeah, the Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I liked it, but I had no problem sitting through it. Right. It is fascinating, yes. you know, both in its qualities as a vanity project and just in its total weirdness. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Willis has compared it in interviews to it's a mad, 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 mad world. And I can kind of see that. Yeah, it is. It's slapstick. It is totally bizarre. It has Andy McDowell doing a dolphin impression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it has it, it all. It just it, it has no kind of. Uh, like mean tone on which to kind of latch on. 
it's it's just incredibly odd. But I think that there's something about that and it's just willingness to not fit into any formula at all that I admired. Sure. It it absolutely has a strangeness that is it is sort of admirable, I would say, even if it doesn't, you know, like as a coherent piece of art, it definitely doesn't hold hold up or work entirely. I mean, there are these scenes, as you mentioned, where the the high scenes where they're singing, so it's kind of a musical at times. But and there aren't even that many of those. No, there's you know, only like given two. That, that is like the main, uh, the gimmick of the way he steals things. It. it they only have two. You're, You're right. right. It's, I, I, I thought the same thing. I thought that's sort of what the movie is famous for, that the movie has Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello like singing and dancing and stealing things. Like that's the, uh, that's the conceit. And it only happens once in the beginning of the movie and once at the end. And it is sort of surprising that there's so little of it. I don't know, but I wonder if maybe the you know test screening, recutting process, perhaps some of that was lost because it's such a kind of goofy thing. Um, I don't know. There's also scenes that seem like they're borderline like Looney Tunes violent, yep. like cartoonish violence. And then there are other scenes where guys are like cutting people's heads off and there's like graphic bloody violence. And you're just like, am I watching a Looney Tune or am I watching a slasher movie? And it's just very bizarre that both of those things exist in one film, sometimes side by side. And that's, I think, as much as I admire the sort of strangeness of it. I do think the movie would be more satisfying if it could figure out what the heck it was trying to be and to do. Right. It doesn't have a coherent universe. I feel like that's the thing, is that it's not the fact that it goes so big that it is its problem. It's that it has no consistency in the tone or the right. universe it's creating. I mean, it's fine that its whole conspiracy makes no sense at all to me. Like, I don't... No. Totally. I can't explain to you even, like, what exactly... I don't... I still don't understand what the CIA is doing in this movie. <laughs> no, it's – I mean you uh, – I, I made the same comparison you did. It's like the Da Vinci Code, da Vinci Code but for a-holes. Like it's just a bunch of jerks and, and a-holes and really broad sort of caricatures all chasing after like the Da Vinci Code crap, like different codexes and gadgets and like this kind of steampunky technology and – yeah, it is sort of funny though that that it is it, it starts in Renaissance Italy and it has all this Da Vinci Code stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm I guess this would be about what twenty five years before or fifteen years before the Da Vinci Code book ever even came out. It right. is sort of funny that this is this weird kind of predecessor, which I'm in no way accusing the Da Vinci Code of ripping off. No one has ever tried to copy and rip off Hudson Hawk, and nor <laughs> should they. Unfortunately, no. I think someone definitely should. I would love to see that. You know what's also interesting about this movie is that, and I think we should talk about Bruce Willis in a second, but that it's also, it's this, it sets up this odd, it, it's two main characters are kind of grounded in Italian-Americanness, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, even though I don't think Willis is Italian-American, uh, but it sets up this kind of contrast with them going to, like, you know, you've got the mafiosos, you've got Bruce Willis. All he wants, his character wants, having been out of prison, is a cappuccino. Right. Uh, and then they go to Italy, and then it uh, kind of makes fun of Italy a bit. Uh, like, it's suspicious of Italy, and mm -hmm. it's it's having this scrappy New Jersey-American kind of tearing things up in, in Italy. So it's this very odd sensibility that... You know, you kind of wonder what exactly 
they were going for. No, like, why go to Italy at all? I, yeah, that's another great question that makes no sense. You're right. You have Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis. They're kind of like being like, you know, they're like New York wise guys. Like, they talk like this. You know, they have Bruce Willis's. I mean, Bruce Willis is kind of. I, I I hesitate to say accent, but like his affect is so like yes. thick. It's like it's like Bruce Willis doing a Bruce Willis impression. The way everyone impersonates him in Die Hard, saying like, you know, we'll <laughs> go out to the coast, we'll have a few laughs. Like it's it's that level of like it's like Bruce Willis turned up to eleven in terms of the way he talks and his sort of smirking smirk. and all of that. It's- Oh, he is like that is the thing about this movie is that it is a vanity project. It, it reminds you, you know, it's like when you have a friend who's become convinced that their terrible haircut is like the most attractive <laughs> look on them, and the more you try and convince them, like it's not the, the more they hold on to it. Like Willis, just it feels like he is leaning into both the smirk and the kind of wise ass blue collar hero shtick, uh, like both of those so hard. Yeah. That act is like actively annoying in this. Yes, it's just like and the whole look. Like he clearly, he's got he wears these like slacks and a pleated, kind of tight t-shirt, pleated, pleated slacks, slacks, t-shirt tucked in, vest sometimes, and this hat, and he's got this set of earrings, and it just he clearly thinks he looks so cool. <laughs> okay, I want to say something here. Very the, first of all, we sh- you, I want you to. We spe- it's not just a set of earrings. He wears four earrings in one ear. <laughs> Yes. Four earrings in a row in one ear. Now, yeah. you you mentioned it's funny. I forgot about the return of Bruno and his his uh, his uh, musical career. But as you were talking uh, during the intro, I looked up his albums, and I want people as they're listening or when they get a chance, go on Wikipedia. Bruce Willis's second album is called. Well, I'm sure Allison can tell us what is the name of Bruce Willis's second album again, Allison. No, I wrote it down. I'm and just, then I uh, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> It's called If It Don't Kill You, It Just Makes You Stronger. And if you <laughs> Right. Ironic Sorry. given what we're talking about. If you look at that Wikipedia page and you look at the cover of the Wikipedia page, Bruce Willis is dressed as Hudson Hawk, basically. He is wearing a hat, the same hat. He's wearing the long dark overcoat. He's wearing big pleated slacks and a tucked in t shirt. He is in costume as Hudson Hawk, which again feeds back into the idea that Bruce Willis in Hudson Hawk is like not even playing a character. He is playing like this outsized idea of himself as the coolest dude who ever lived. Like mm-hmm. and just he has completely bought into the myth of Bruce Willis as the ultimate charming uh, New York kind of, like you said, working class, cool dude, right? And I think, you know, I was thinking a lot about this because there's a lot of stuff in this movie. Like I enjoy movies with very broad comedy, you know, the the sort of wacky, shticky comedy in this movie. It's almost like Three Stooges-esque or like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, he gets punched in the face and there's one scene where he like gets punched in the face like 10 times in a row. Right. And it is absolutely out of a cartoon. Yes. And generally, I enjoy that kind of humor. You know, it's not that far removed from a Mel Brooks movie or a Zucker Brothers movie. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem, one of the problems with the concept of Hudson Hawk is that, you know, if we look at those Zucker Brothers, the Brooks movies – you know when they're when the, when the comedy is this broad when the action is this silly and there's there's really no stakes you're not really worried about the characters the reasons you like those movies and you care at all about them is cuz you care about the characters like you care about Frank Drebin you care about you know the the heroes of blazing saddles here because bruce willis is so smirking 
you like you don't care about him. You hate him. He's annoying. He's a pain. Yeah. You know, like he's not nearly as cool and as likable and as charming as he thinks he is in the movie. And I think that is one of the sort of fundamental problems with it is that you don't really care about what's going on because it's so cartoonish, and you don't really care about him because he's such a pain in the butt. Yeah, there's this moment at the end where a character that you think has died comes back. <laughs> right. And it is done so, like, just, like, in a, such a desultory way that it's like a middle finger to the audience. Yes. Like, this is a character who's supposed to be, like, really near and dear to, to someone's heart. And, like, it, it's it's just so half-hearted. Right. You I know, felt I did, insulted. <laughs> yes. In a way, you know, I, I, I probably thought about this too much, frankly. But I was thinking, again, about... You know, he was in a way he reminded me of Bugs Bunny because Bugs Bunny is in these <laughs> Looney Tunes and he's sort of commenting on the action. He seems above it all. Because that's the other thing is that Bruce Willis is so smarmy and smirking that it almost seems like he's too cool for this broad comedy, which is just death for broad comedy. But then again, that's what Bugs Bunny does is he kind of winks at the audience and insults the villains and everything. But I, again, I just sort of think like how much you enjoy Bugs Bunny and, and how he does seem cool and that Bruce Willis is just like – he just – he doesn't seem that – he doesn't have that like intrinsic, likable aspect of Bugs where you love when Bugs gets gets a, gets a one-up on Elmer Fudd or whoever. And maybe it also speaks to the villains in the movie who we haven't talked about who just aren't all that great. I mean I guess some of well, them are – They're so confusing. Yeah. Like and, it's never clear even like what they're really after or why they have to have Hudson Hawk involved who frankly right. doesn't seem that great of a cat burglar. Right. Right. Yeah, there's there's really no reason for him to be involved. There's no reason for anyone to be doing anything. They want this machine, the Da Vinci machine, and they need him to steal these particular things. But then at points they even admit like they didn't need him to do certain things, that it was all a setup. And yeah, the CIA is involved for reasons that are not entirely clear, and the Vatican is involved, and yeah, it's just a mess. Whereas it, it, the uh, thing is, like, it's a movie about how Bruce Willis is the most important person in the world, <laughs> right? And it, and as many vanity projects do, it is about the entire world sort of validating that belief by casting these people who constantly need him and remind us how important and cool uh, the Hudson Hawk is. Uh, I did not realize his name wasn't Hudson Hawk, actually, until mm. the movie began. I thought that was the character's name. It's actually the character's nickname, which I yeah. thought was kind of funny, because when he gives the ex- explanation of why, it's mm-hmm. just a, such a it, – it's hard to believe that that character would take that name for that reason. And the way he even, like, describes – like, when, he, when he's explaining the reason to Andy McDowell, it's so ludicrous. He, the way he says it, it's like he's reading it out of a book or something. Yeah, it's like it, a cold wind off the Hudson. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you are in no way a cold character. Like, your whole presence is how you're so like, eh, you know what I mean? Like, he's like yeah. an ingratiating guy. There's nothing about him that, I guess, other than the Hudson, New Jersey aspect, has nothing to do with how this guy is conceived. So it, it, even his nickname doesn't make sense. No, it just is something that Willis clearly thought was cool. Yes. I don't like in, in like reading a little bit about what he how he conceived of this character. He saw him as like almost like a pre James Bond, mm. which is just I mean, and I'm sure that that changed as he was coming up with the movie. But that is so far from what he actually came up with here. Yeah, <laughs> that it's really something else. I did want to give a shout out before we finish this up. That there are moments when I feel like I'm like, I can see the movie that this could have been like, I see this, like the appeal of this as like a sensibility that it can't hold on to. And I say foremost on in terms of this is the moment where uh, Bruce Willis has been like 
kidnapped and put in an ambulance for some reason. And he's trying to escape while the ambulance is driving. And he ends up on the gurney dangling behind the ambulance in the midst of traffic. Yeah. And someone in a neighboring car tosses a cigarette out the window. And he catches it. He takes a puff. And then he's like, oh, it's menthol. <laughs> and it's just such an odd like moment that it's kind of delightful. Yes, I actually like that moment too. And that scene in general is not bad. And they like clearly they shot that on that bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some nice photography there. And then the scene goes on forever. And it's really, I mean, that is one of the most cartoonish scenes where the like the that that gurney, it's almost like rocket powered. It like it never stops rolling as if it's going down a giant hill. And it somehow like passes the ambulance, and then the ambulance yep. explodes. Like I suppose it fits within the ludicrous logic and physics of this world. But on the other hand, I was like I was with that scene for a little bit and that moment you single out is kind of one of the moments that works but then it just goes on so long that by the end of it you're like what am I watching what is happening uh I think it it, again this movie tried to strike that strike this delicate sort of balance that almost no one could have hit and I don't think the filmmakers here were were close to close to capable of hitting but there are those moments, and I, I liked some of the stuff with Willis and Danny Aiello, even them, like, the dancing and singing. Like, I mean, those sure. are kind of pleasant moments. I mean, Bruce Willis is not as good a singer as he thinks he is. Like, no. you know, he does not have a an amazing voice or anything. But, they, you know, they look – there is, like, a sort of joie de vivre and pleasure and fun that comes through those scenes. I mean, the idea of them keeping time by singing – I feel like it's the least practical way of doing this that could ever be. Just buy a freaking watch, guys. But it doesn't. But that's not what it's supposed to be. Like it is supposed to be this sort of personal expression, and it's just about sort of the the pleasure of these guys being buddies. And I think that comes through in the movie. I just think that it doesn't come through enough. Yeah, that's the and thing. there's not I, right. I, there's I, not enough moments. And in fact, there's. I mean, I actually, like I said, I kind of enjoyed Willis and Iel together, but probably the middle hour of the movie they're separated right mm-hmm. where he gets kidnapped and and schlepped over to Italy and it's only until you know they don't get back together until the end of the movie and it's like yeah. if the best thing in your movie is the relationship between two characters who only really spend maybe 20 minutes together you've got a, <laughs> you've got a problem you definitely have a problem or maybe you just have a vanity project which is de- undoubtedly what Hudson Hawk is and is i would say the most interesting thing about it um but that is Hudson Hawk and it is available on Hulu all right. Our topic for Q Shots this time is, again, Vanity Project. I think a very well-chosen subject given uh, given Hudson Hawk. I can think of few Vanity Projects that are like more textbook examples than Hudson Hawk. It really is a beautiful uh, example of this. But, Allison, is there anything you want to say generally about uh, this sort of uh, – I don't know if it's a genre, subgenre, but just this idea of the Vanity Project, what it means, what you think of when you hear those terms. Any any general thoughts here? Sure. I will say this. I don't think that a Vanity Project can be good. It can maybe be cult, have a cult following. It can be interesting. But if a Vanity Project turns out to be a good movie, then it's a passion project, mm. right? Like uh, a Vanity Project – suggests that this movie shouldn't exist, that it exists because of someone's vanity. And there's a thin line between passion project and vanity project sometimes. But I noticed people like when I was looking around to see like what movies most frequently came up with uh, when talking about vanity projects. And I saw some describe the passion of the Christ, the gangs of New York and uh, Titanic as 
as vanity projects. And I was like, no, none of those can count as vanity projects. Mm. They're passion projects. Right. Sometimes very odd ones and unlikely ones, but you know, they were successes. Right. A vanity project almost by definition by definition really has to be a failure. Yes. Maybe an interesting failure, but a failure. Yes. That's that's interesting though. I, I hadn't really thought about it that way that, that that it's like the vanity project is the flip side of the passion project. So would you say then that a vanity project can only exist sort of like after the fact, like you can't call something a vanity project until it exists and you can judge it because if it's good, then it's a passion project. Well, I don't know, because I would say that one of the, like the classic vanity projects, no one has seen the day the clown cried. Right. You know, but it's understood to be a vanity project, right? It'd be like a, one of the great legendary vanity projects. Right. And no matter how good or bad it is, the fact that it was never released sort of implies a badness, right? There was a, yeah. there was a negative outcome in any event. The people who yeah. put money into that movie, they did not make any money back because the movie was never released. <laughs> um, so that's a, yeah, that's a fair point. But I mean, the one other thing I would say in terms of those movies you mentioned about the examples that you said are not vanity projects is personally for me, I really feel like a vanity project, I mean, maybe your examples don't speak to this, but it kind of needs to be someone on screen. Like, to me, it's hard to envision a vanity project in which the the, van- the person whose vanity is on display isn't in the movie in some way. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I, yeah. I guess maybe I, I'm trying to think of an example where a director is having a vanity project. I can tell you a few. Okay. I would say Alexander, mm, the Oliver Stone The Oliver film. Stone Alexander. Yes. Yeah. Maybe. Like, this, okay. this thing he was... It was obsessed with this idea of making a movie about Alexander. Right. And when you watch it, what you feel like you're really learning about is not Alexander, but you feel like you're learning things about Oliver Stone. Right, right, right. And maybe like some laughable things. Mm -hmm. And I would also say James Franco, who is not always in his movies. But I think that there are a fair amount of movies he makes, he has directed, that feel like vanity projects to me. Mm. Yeah. You know, he is indulging this like this idea that he can direct well i think he's often in these but Faulkner, is, that's the thing is a lot of you know, them or, a lot like of he's, he's 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 been i feel like maybe to get them made sometimes he has to show up in a small part in them mm. but that's not why he's making them he's not being like i have to star in this movie yeah i guess i would say in response to that like yeah a lot of the ones that he's made that feel the most vain are the ones that he is also in And I just think that to me, like that's, I mean, that's something I can talk about more during my picks is like when I think of Vanity Project, I think of someone sort of like stepping out of the, out of their comfort zone in a way or trying to exceed, you know, passion is a good word for it because I think they are often movies that they're passionate about or ideas that they're passionate about, but perhaps just sort of their, their ambition exceeded their skills uh, or Mm. something like that. And, um, you know, in the case of like a Hudson Hawk, you know, Bruce Willis, co-wrote the story you know like it's not just that he's in it it's like he co-wrote it he felt very strongly about this thing he you know made this happen and clearly his ambitions were in some ways thwarted by the skills of the people involved Mm -hmm. i do feel like also a vanity project has to has to kind of like teach you some truth about the person involved the pa- mm. like the, the force behind it that maybe yes. they didn't necessarily want to show you yes i feel like that is part of it yes. that you are seeing and that's what's so fascinating about them even yes. when they're miserable movies yes. is that you feel like you really learn something about you know um 
this actor or this director in rare occasions. Yes. Like I, there, there's this like agonizing personal aspect to it. Yes. One often that they did not even realize was present in it. That, right. Um, they're trying but to. Yes. Ex- yeah. Yeah. They're trying to express something and they're unsuccessful expressing what they wanted to express. But in doing so, they seem to uh, unveil or reveal something about themselves, their true selves that they mm-hmm. didn't even intend. I mean, in the case of like a Hudson Hawk, it's like, I mean, I, I have to assume Bruce Willis knew he was dressing like as himself. But to me, mm-hmm. I find that so fascinating that he's cast himself as this guy and his costuming in the film is like how he – like I vaguely remembered this. And then when I saw that his 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 album cover, it only really confirmed it. Like I remember seeing you know, Bruce Willis on uh, like red carpets of openings of movies or Planet Hollywoods where he was dressed like Hudson Hawk. And it's like mm-hmm. – it's just sort of fascinating that you that he would do that, and um, and, and so yeah, so I think you're absolutely right that there is this this almost like autobiographical or confessional nature to these movies. Often, though, it's a confessional autobiographical nature that's maybe even not realized. Um, mm-hmm. That's sort of um, subtextual or unintentional. Uh, one last thing before we get into our picks, I did want to point out that. I mean, implied in the in the Vanity Project is that someone has the power or the incredible luck to get this project made. Yes. And so I will say that is why there's so many more Vanity Projects kind of centered around men than there are women. Mm. I think that it's just like it, it women haven't as often gotten to force through a project that shouldn't exist. Very good point. I know both you of know. Oh, actually one of my movies is a is a rare vanity project for a woman, but you are right that most of them are for men. And in fact, all of the first movies I thought of, which I can't recommend because they're not available online, were all from men. Like, mm-hmm. and like both of mine are from men. Okay. But for like the, let me just briefly say the ones that I couldn't include because I'm sure people are going to think of them and I um, I couldn't include them because at least I couldn't find them online. The Brown Bunny, um, I think of as like this classic vanity project of like mm-hmm. Vincent and, you know, unsuccessful. And it's a movie I actually like. It's a very it's sort of what you said, like where they can be culty or interesting. Like it does seem to be revealing something about the filmmaker, but also maybe in a very kind of vain way. I mean, it's hard to not see the end of that movie as an act of strange surreal vanity um another example that i think is like a classic perfect example and it relates in a way to james franco now or soon will is the room is um tommy wiseau who this weird guy who somehow had enough money to make himself a writer director producer actor on this project where he cast himself and is very clearly trying to express something very deep and profound in his strange soul that um you know no person in their right mind would give him the money to make it he as you said he had to have the power and the financial ability to do this himself and you are it is almost it it, it feels like to me the the room does this very pure expression of of what i don't know but it seems to be coming from somewhere very mm-hmm. personal and intense and that's part of the charm of that movie is that he doesn't have the talent to really properly express what he's trying to express but that it's this combination of this strange surreal um uh, imagery and and acting and writing um but so deeply felt i think that is part of what makes that movie so charming and fascinating yep agreed that is absolutely the core of it yes all right so let's get to our picks you want to give your first yeah i will i went with a film 
that reminded me of Hudson Hawk in a lot of ways, even though it preceded it. Uh, not the least that, like Hudson Hawk, it features a small appearance from Frank Stallone. Mm. <laughs> yes, well, something every movie needs. Um, <clears throat> that film is Paradise Alley, which is available for rent. Uh, this would, of course, uh, part of the reason it featured Frank Stallone is that it comes from his brother, Sylvester Stallone. It was Sly's directorial debut in 1978, two years after Rocky basically gave him carte blanche to an attempt this uh, romanticized 1940s family drama about pro wrestling. This is a movie that features songs by Tom Waits, who even appears on screen as a character. But the music that you will remember as the credits roll, all the, like more, more, you will never be able to get it out of your head, <laughs> is the lugubrious theme song uh, that plays over the opening sequence, Too Close to Paradise. Mm. Music by Bill Conti, performed by Matt, you know. It's performed by Sylvester Stallone. It is performed by Sylvester Stallone. Quite beautifully. <laughs> It's really something. It's one of the most amazing things you've ever heard in your life. I'll play it. Yeah. I will I will insert it somewhere in this episode so that people yeah. can sample a little, just a taste of it. And I should say, as this song plays, Sylvester Stallone races <laughs> someone across the rooftops in slow motion. That is correct. Dressed like this kind of Victor- like, like Victorian orphan a bit. Yeah, he looks a little, yeah, he's a little Oliver-ish. You're absolutely yeah. right. And then, and then, and the song plays. It's really incredible. Um, Paradise Alley was actually the project Stallone came up with before Rocky. Um, it kind of he had like licensed it to someone he didn't like, and who's really difficult. Um, which is why when he was kind of pitching it around, people asked him for, "Do you have anything else?" And so he went on to conceive Rocky. Uh, the thing with Paradise Alley is that when you watch it. It just—it feels like strange and maudlin at the same time. Uh, it's about a trio of down-on-their-luck brothers in Hell's Kitchen. The oldest is played by Armand Asante, who gets an introducing credit in this film. The youngest is played by heavyweight boxer Lee Canalito. And then Stallone, with longish hair, an earring, and a newsboy cap, plays Cosmo, the ne'er-do-well middle child. Um, its treatment of hard scrabble 1940s New York life wavers between gritty and stylized. Um, there are times where it's supposed to be this like kind of really uh, 70s style depiction of this period era. And there's other times where it feels like this extremely heightened and kind of uh, almost expressionistic version. Um, and, and, and its characters just seem to be in different movies. Like Asante is in a drama Salone is in something more comedic. He has this whole weird sequence in which he wins a monkey in a bar bet and then tries to perform with it on the street. And then Catalino plays the sweet, dumb, muscled brother who becomes the center of the story, but not until the movie like dicks around considerably. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get to the wrestling for quite a while. Yep. Um, and he kind of gets recruited by his siblings to compete in professional but non-staged wrestling in this underground bar called Paradise Alley. Right. Wrestling is easily the best part of this movie, um, <clears throat> even when it's shot like a kind of stylized, um, like a wrestling picture, like this kind of B-movie picture, um, you know, with like grand drama uh, and, and a lot of montages. Uh, what's, what's really interesting about this movie is that it, it absolutely is a vanity project. And yet at the same time, it feels like a, Stallo- a movie in which Stallone uh, weirdly has the most trouble fitting himself in. Hmm. Uh, You know, Stallone has talked about how studio pressure forced him to cut down this movie. But honestly, having watched it again, like the best thing I would say it could do would be to kind of eliminate his character. 
<laughs> who does a lot of like period versions of like a Rocky style bumbling around the city, kind of trying to make things happen, trying to romance a girl who's not really interested in him. Um, and that if the movie just divvied up the dramas he's responsible for uh, to the other two brothers, I think it would actually make a lot more sense. There is a part towards like the whole wrestling part uh, requires his character and Armando Sante's character to make switches in how they feel towards their, their little brother that happen out of nowhere. Like uh, it just, it's not built up at all. One of them starts off trying to take advantage of the brother and one of them starts off protective and then they swap and neither feels convincing. Right. Um, you know, I think that it, it, Stallone is both like, he takes up a huge portion of this movie, like to the movie's, like it's a problem in the movie how much of it is just following him around while he does nothing in particular uh and yet uh he just he doesn't really contribute much to the movie other than kind of stand around offering up this look that in the way that bruce willis does in hudson hawk stallone seems really attached to mm-hmm. he even admits at one point he looks a bit like a pirate and that he loves it <laughs> uh. Um, but it's just it's just such an odd fit for him. And it's just at this point an oddity. You know, Stallone would go on to direct other Rocky movies and go on to have a you know directorial career, go on to become an action star. But this is his attempt to make a serious-ish drama. And it's extremely odd. Uh, I, I just like it's you can barely see what he saw in it, other than that it's a project for him, a way for him to kind of do some pre-Rocky stuff before Rocky, uh, and then at this point, after Rocky. So that is Paradise Alley. It is available for rent. Not a good movie, but a pretty interesting one. Yeah, that's a that's a very good choice. I, w- I would just say two things here. One, I think you could also include, almost as like a double feature, like the movie he made right before this, Fist, um, can almost be, another, it's like another side of the Sylvester Stallone post-Rocky Vanity project. And in that one, he gets to play a guy who, like, ages. He gets to put on, like, old man makeup and play an older <laughs> guy. So that's, like, that's another sort of vanity project thing. It's like, I'm not just, you know, I'm an actor. I'm a very serious actor. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say was the, one of the other things that I find really fascinating about Paradise Alley is it doesn't seem aware that pro wrestling is fake. Um, right. It's shot in a way that definitely looks staged. And, you know, it's like it looks, you know, like I, I, I've only seen this movie one time, but aren't there scenes where like the rain is pouring through the roof of where they're doing the, the, the final? Wrestling? Yeah, the final uh, the final big fight, the kind of climactic scene, it's pouring outside. And because this is like a weird underground bar, it's raining inside as well. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's very high, high stylized and surreal, but they're, you know, but but which wrestling is and is part of, I think, the, the charm of wrestling. And yet the, the movie is completely convinced that wrestling is real. And I know that it's set in the past. And but I'm pretty sure that even at the time this movie is set, a lot of uh, wrestling, very little of wrestling was ever quote unquote real. It was always a work. No. That's the point. And this movie right. seems unaware of that, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Well I, I also yeah, it seems like it should be about boxing. Correct. Right? Like everything about like the, the way they're worried about uh what's happening <clears throat> to their younger brother right. who's getting hurt. His, his, it seems yeah. like it should be about boxing, but it's not. It's it's about wrestling and it's about wrestling in that way. It's like it's about wrestling in the way that like in Barton Fink He's asked to write a wrestling picture, right? You know, it's like that. This kind of like big guys in ones in like onesies. I didn't even mention this, but the uh, uh, the brother's wrestling name is Kid Salami, <laughs> which is incredible. 
Yes. Uh, and he wears salamis at the end. Sure, so of it course. Seems, it, it seems to understand that it is that there's a stagey aspect. Right. But it really wants badly to have this kind of like this could get you killed. Right. This kind of tragic, it. potentially tragic element. Yes. To, well, because otherwise there's no stakes if it's all fake. I mean, it's it's very strange. Anyway. All right. Let's get to my first pick. Uh, my first pick to me, one of the all time most magnificent vanity projects ever. It is, as I think we've discussed how these vanity projects often are, it is terrible by almost any measure. But as an expression of vanity, it is a masterpiece. It is On Deadly Ground from Steven Seagal, uh, directed by Steven Seagal, produced by Steven Seagal, starring Steven Seagal. Uh, One of the fun things about just like the opening credits is how often Steven Seagal's name pops up. It just keeps popping up over and over, which amuses me, instantly makes it a funny movie. Um, Some backstory here for those of you who are not Seagal scholars um, is and only kind of know him today as this. I mean, now he's sort of this kind of laughable figure. He uh, has this ridiculous fake hair and he makes a lot of crappy direct to video action movies. But in the early – He had like a reality show for a while. He had a reality show where he was like a cop, yes, which is – it's a very strange show too. And there are some similarities. If we really wanted to talk about them, we could talk about those, but we don't want to talk about those. Anyway, in in the early 90s though, there was a period where he looked like sort of the next big action star. He had made a bunch of these cheap – quickie thrillers that did all did well and then he had this surprising huge hit with under siege this diehard ripoff set on a battleship and and that was it that was like the moment where with his career on the rise he had the power as we've talked about he could make what he wanted and what he wanted to make was a movie about the beauty of alaska the importance of environmental conservation and above all the greatness and awesomeness of steven seagal and (laughs) You know, I was trying to think, like, this guy that he's playing, like, who would I compare him to? And, like, I, I couldn't think of anyone except maybe, like, Jesus? Like, he's like he's like a former CIA agent who's also, like, the deadliest martial artist on the planet, but he also preaches peace. He is a man of peace, and he's very spiritual. And he, he uh, he's good at blowing up fires on oil rigs. He's, like, the best person in the world at this. But he also cares very deeply about the earth and uh, the native people who live in the area. He's a, a white guy who dresses in Native American jackets. Mm. And, that is, and that is before he winds up in an explosion and is then nursed back to health by an Eskimo mystic who declares him a bear. <laughs> um, supposedly, Warner Brothers only agreed to make On Deadly Ground because they wanted Steven Seagal to make Under Siege 2 – and so he, they made a deal where, okay, if we let you make and direct On Deadly Ground, you have to make Under Siege 2 for us. And that's what happened, and he made this, which it's one of the, to me, the clearest examples of when you get that, this toxic combination of unchecked and misplaced ego and true sincerity, um, you know, kind of like The Room, where you believe what you are saying is very important. And in some ways, what he's saying is important. We should care <laughs> about the environment. We should be worried about corporations that uh, you know care more about the bottom line than what they are doing to the world. But is the man we want expressing that idea Steven Seagal? That, I suppose, is the question. Um, 
there are so many crazy scenes. I will just describe one because we are running out of time. We're going a little long already, and I, I want you to experience this movie for yourself if you have not. But the one scene that blows my mind every time is early in the film, he uh, Steven Seagal's character is in a, in a bar, and he gets into a brawl with like 10 different guys, and naturally he beats the crap out of all of them. They barely touch him. The last guy, though, the guy who has sort of started all of this, instead of fighting him, he gets into this game. I called it as a kid. I called this game Slaps. Do you know this game, Allison? Um, you mean like with the knuckles, like um, <laughs> slapping no, someone's hands? Like you, you hold your hands face up, and another person puts their fa- uh-huh. hands on top of yours, and you try to slap their hand, and they move it out of yep. the way. That's what the game he plays with this guy, and Seagal just absolutely destroys him in the game over and over again. And you know, we've already seen the guy that Seagal is beating. He is a monster. He's this racist bigot. He is just an awful. We've seen him being awful to this Native American guy in the bar. So he's a monster. We hate him instantly. But Seagal beats him so thoroughly, slapping him, punching him, he makes him puke, that like at a certain point, Seagal becomes the bully, and the bully becomes the victim. It's very, very strange. The scene goes on and on as he's belittling him in front of everyone. And then when you think he's going to like finally beat him or like knock him down and knock him out, he like – he looks at him very seriously and he says, what does it take to change the essence of a man? And the guy he's been beating up is like, I need time. I need time. As if to imply, I know that I'm broken inside and you've exposed my flaws, but I'm just a man and I need – I give me time to fix himself. And Seagal like says, me too. I need time too. And he like walks away and pats him on the shoulder. And that's how the scene ends. It's like he's like <laughs> – He's like somehow through beating up these people and then beating this guy and emasculating him, embarrassing him, he somehow opened his mind and changed his soul forever. And then the final – which is absurd. And then the final irony, which I found on the IMDb page for this, is that this question that he asks, what does it take to change the essence of a man, apparently appeared – at the time, in an aftershave commercial that Steven Seagal's wife, Kelly LeBrock, appeared in. So that is where he got his existential idea. So that is the movie in a nutshell. It is a movie about the power of like, literally slapping people until you inspire them to change their ways, change even the entire world, the environmental policy of the world, inspired by a supposedly profound slogan from an aftershave commercial. That is it. That is the whole thing in a nutshell. Is That's really magnificent. It's amazing. And I haven't even gotten to the end of the movie, which is a very long didactic speech about the environment that Steven Seagal himself delivers. And supposedly, um, you know, originally the rough cut of the movie was uh, that speech ran 11 straight minutes and he only cut it down. To still like a long like seven minutes because the studio forced him to after disastrous test screenings. And um, there's another tidbit from the IMDb page that allegedly he shot 40 minutes worth of footage for the environmental message and was hoping to use all 40 minutes in the final cut. And, <laughs> and only cut it down eventually because of pressure and bad test screenings and stuff like that. But just think about that. A Steven Seagal movie with fight scenes and – uh, Steven Zagal having spiritual journeys, thinking he's a bear, with a 40-minute environmental message at the end. It's unreal. It is on Deadly Ground. It is available for rent, and you can also watch it right now on HBO Go or HBO Now. 
I'm glad you brought up a movie like that because it is true that a lot of vanity projects are cloaked in the idea that they are about something important, right? Yes. They're about something very serious. There's This has to exist because um, it'll teach people something, yes. even though what it mostly teaches you is about the ego of the person right. who's making it. Yeah, they're not- again instructing you in any way right there's almost like a messianic quality to it that that these people believe they have been imparted with some important urgent message that only they can express yes like and and they have to use their star power to do something good yes right yeah you know but other times with uh with vanity projects sometimes you're just trying to get back to the past or sometimes you're trying to produce a tribute to someone you genuinely admire and then end up not really doing them justice at all which is the case i would say for my second pick the rum diary which Mm -hmm. is streaming on crackle you know uh as someone who's been genuinely enjoying uh gaping at all of the articles about johnny depp's dire financial straits and spending (laughs) habits $30,000 a month on wine, Matt. $30,000. We've all been Um, there. Who doesn't? Who among us can say we have not spent $30,000 on wine? Uh, I wanted to take a look at a film that kind of, it felt like it marked the start of his current dark turn. Uh, The Rum Diary came out in 2011, uh, a year after Alice in Wonderland. The same year as Pirates of the Caribbean 4. Depp had done a few ones for them if you will it was time for one for me and that one for me was the rum diary a project depp had first tried to get made in 2000 and had not been able to this is based on a semi-autobiographical novel by depp's beloved hunter s thompson who depp Depp had played a variation on in fear and loathing in las vegas in 1998 had befriended admired greatly i think he paid for when when hunter s thompson died his for his ashes to be shot into space in a rocket uh the novel the rum diary was written around 1959 uh but wasn't published until 40 years after that thanks to depp who discovered the manuscript when going through thompson's papers with the writer um, so Depp willed this film into being on many levels. It was only the second film he produced. He brought with nail and eyes, Bruce Robinson, who hadn't directed for almost two decades on to write and direct it. Uh, and then Depp, of course, starred in the film as Paul Kemp, another Thompson stand in this failed novelist who goes to Puerto Rico to lie his way into a job at a failing newspaper doing a ton of drinking and getting entangled in some messy corruption led by a character played by Aaron Eckhart. There's also a much gazed at girl played by Depp's future ex-wife, Amber Heard. Uh, I don't think the rum diary is awful, but it is much better as a document of someone trying to recapture a sense of bohemian cool. He's no longer in touch with Mm. than it is as a standalone movie. You know, everything that is interesting about it is meta textual. The Rum Diary is Depp trying to play a Raoul Duke-style wild man, but also trying to look handsome and to play young and to romance an actress 22 years his junior. Uh, And there are so many scenes, uh, including this one involving hallucinogens to another involving a battered car and Depp's kind of uh, stocky, sloppy partner in crime. They all recall and compare to the worst to Fear and Loathing. And Depp himself has said the way I approached the movie was that the character of Paul Kemp is Raoul Duke as he's learning to speak. It was like playing the same character only 15 years before. This guy's got something, there's an energy underneath it, it's just ready to pop out, to shoot out. 
So Depp is like trying to go back in time to play to to pitch this movie as a prequel to Fear and Loathing, mm. except made you know over a decade past then. Uh, and and there's and there's something kind of painful about that. This sense of trying to recapture youth and kind of youthful rebellion that is slipping away. You know, Depp has always kind of admired admired the like slightly vintage slightly before before Depp's own time kind of uh, chaos and and kind of brilliance that Thompson represented to him. And what I think is so kind of agonizing about watching this movie, though I said, as I said, I don't think it's like a disaster. What's so agonizing about watching it is that you really feel like Depp doesn't understand Hunter S. Thompson anymore, <laughs> you know? Because he's his his own kind of preening is getting in the way. Uh, there's this kind of weird smugness to the way the movie has uh, this character going around sneering at, at the corruption, American corruption, and kind of like glorying in the political disaster that is Puerto Rico at the time and all of the unrest. Uh, it, it's almost it's lacking a self awareness that that you feel like Thompson had. There's no self-mockery here, really. Uh, and then it ends on a note that's meant to be a celebration of Thompson, but that you kind of imagine Thompson rolling his eyes at this like happy ending, this like he'd go on to be a foe to like many of those, uh, uh, you know, all of those wrongdoers out there. Uh, it is, it's kind of a sad movie. It made me sad watching it because it made me mourn Johnny Depp a little bit. Um, which I guess is, uh, and that, in terms of like the Vanity Project's unintended uh, texts, that would be the chief one for me for The Rum Diary, which is streaming on Crackle. That's a, a great choice. I hadn't even thought about that one. And you're absolutely right about You actually made the movie sound a lot more interesting than I found it when I watched it. But I didn't think about it on those terms in terms of uh, the meta text about Johnny Depp himself. I would I almost want to watch it again to think about that, except that movie was so disappointing and boring that I kind of don't want yeah, to. Yeah, it's not even like grandly bad. It's just no. a little... It's pretty ordinary. And, you know, it's funny when you're describing it, it reminded me of another movie that I thought about, another classic vanity project, Beyond the Sea, the Kevin Spacey yes. movie about him playing Bobby Darren. You talked about Johnny Depp being too old for that part. I mean, in Beyond the Sea, Kevin Spacey is older than than Bobby Darren was when he died. So he's playing you know, he like plays his entire life story. And meanwhile, when he made the movie, he was already older than Bobby Darren was when he died. And he's playing him as like, at one point, I think he's playing him as like a 16 year old. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's ludicrous, but there is it's, some, there's something garish about it. <laughs> yes. But I think there again, he is. And, and it, it, you know, it's a movie made about a guy's idol, you know, sort of this tribute, this sort of incredibly misguided tribute. They would make a great double feature of Vanity, I think, those two movies together. Uh, but that is not my second pick. My second pick speaks to another aspect of what I think about involving Vanity Projects. And I think we've talked about it a little bit. But that is when someone who is incredibly gifted at something – or one aspect of uh, filmmaking or the entertainment world becomes convinced that because they're good at something, they're good at everything and believe that their skills are like transcendent. And in this case, I am talking, and this is a movie where it is a vanity project for a woman, but it is uh, uh, the film Glitter featuring Mariah Carey, a woman with one of the most beautiful voices that I have ever heard in my life who became convinced for whatever reason that what she needed to do with her time was not make more beautiful music, but to act. And so act she did 
sort of in glitter and <laughs> this film is expressly a vehicle for her there is some singing in it she does play an aspiring musician her character is sort of this aspiring musician broken home she is discovered and she first works as the backup singer to a very untalented uh, pop star named Silk, uh, S-Y, I think it's spelled like S-Y-L-K in a strange, now feels very surreal twist. Silk is played by Padma Lakshmi from Top Chef, <laughs> um, which is, you would, it's like, this is from like pre-Top Chef era. So just seeing her pop up now makes it very strange and surreal. But anyway, she works as a backup singer, but of course, uh, Silk can't sing. She has no talent, and like they're sort of using Mariah Carey's beautiful voice almost to mask that, sort of to, you know, she is like the voice of Silk, actually. And eventually she becomes her own star, and it's about her rise and and um, what it takes to be a pop star and all these sorts of things. And looking at scenes from this movie again, I had not seen it in a long time, because why would I? But, uh, you know, I was thinking about how these types of projects really seem like these attempts to boost the person involved's ego, to like, you know, almost to, imp- to prove to themselves, if no one else, that they are as great and important as an artist, as they believe themselves to be, you know? And that so often they are filmmaker, actors, artists, they cast themselves in these parts where they get to be like transcendent and kind of like Hudson Hawk where everyone in the world is like constantly reminding us that Bruce Willis is the most important person on the planet. And that's kind of what happens here where everyone is just falling over Mariah Carey, the greatest voice in history. And granted, when you're Mariah Carey, that's not that huge of a stretch, but I you know, she's frankly just not a very good actress. And so what happens is that this movie and sometimes these movies in general, they like do the opposite of what they intend to do. Like instead of building these people up as these mythic figures that invariably because they expose the things that they're not good at, that they have the opposite effect. They tend to deflate. Like they make these people who are good at one thing because they try to do more. They don't, they refuse to stay in their lane. They end up kind of minimizing them in a strange way. And that's what I think of when I watch glitter. It's like they take this genuinely talented, gifted, wonderful artist. And it like, it makes them seem less impressive as a result. Um, And the other sort of thing that I always, that's like just an incredibly, like a huge, seemingly obvious miscalculation, but again, I think speaks to the vanity aspect, is that there is music in the movie. The music is not terrible, but it's not like Mariah Carey music. She's not singing these incredible songs. She's not singing any of the songs we associate with Mariah Carey. She's not playing herself. She's playing Billy Frank. She's playing this pop star, um, and it's set in the early 80s, so there's some covers of early 80s songs, and it's, you know, it's like... It's almost like they thought that the sheer fact that Mariah Carey is the one who's singing because she's so great, it almost doesn't matter if the songs are good. Well, no. You it's you need her to have good songs to sing. We can appreciate her voice, but the music needs to be good too. And again, that was like another thing that they sort of screwed up, just sort of like, well, if it's Mariah Carey, that's you, we've got it in the bag. People, if it's she's singing music, that's all you really need, but not quite the case. Um, again, this movie has some very jaw-droppingly bizarre scenes. There's one that I always remember to this day. Uh, 
that's a music video, which I think you can find online if you just want to watch that part, um, where the director of the music video says things like, the glitter cannot overpower the artist. And um, we ask ourselves, is she black? Is she white? We don't care. She's exotic. I want to see more of her breasts. Uh, okay, sure. There you go. Um, in terms of the sort of mesmerizing, unintentional comedy must-watch value, I would I would rate On Deadly Ground or um, some of these other movies, Paradise Alley, uh, higher than Glitter, but it definitely has that quality too. It is sort of shocking. Um, it's very existence and worth at least one watch to contemplate the set of circumstances that led to its very strange existence. So that is Glitter, and that is available for rent. All right, we went a little long talking about vanity projects. They're so fascinating. We could do a whole podcast, like a series on vanity projects. That'd be pretty pretty fun, actually. But um, let's skip talking about new movies and go straight to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap things up on Film Spotting SVU by giving you some new releases, new to streaming, two listener recommendations you guys have sent to us at our email address, filmspotting uh, SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, you're going to go first. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Well, first up, new to Netflix is The Transfiguration, a indie movie that is a directorial debut of Michael O'Shea and uh, this American indie filmmaker and managed the kind of really rare feat of, of premiering in at the Cannes Film Festival in 2016. It was in the Uncertain Regard sidebar, but a very high-profile place to have a directorial debut. And it's a, it's a kind of variation on a vampire movie uh, set in, like uh, I think, like Out on the Rockaways. So um, uh, quite an achievement for, for someone to pull off the transfiguration new to Netflix. New to Amazon is After the Storm, uh, the latest kind of quiet masterpiece from Hirokazu Koreeda. Uh, this one is about a kind of wastrel who used to be a novelist and at, th- at this point is kind of a failed private detective and a compulsive gambler uh, who reconnects uh, with his son. His, uh, he's divorced during this storm uh, and reconnects with his mother as well. Uh, and it's kind of wonderful. And uh, in that very Koreeda way, that is on Amazon. And finally, new to Hulu, uh, Difficult People Season 3. This is a, is a, like, there's so many original series out right now. And it's sometimes I feel like uh, there's like a new one every week. You just can't watch all of them. But I will say that Difficult People is worth watching, uh, starring Julie Klausner and Billy Eichner as two struggling comedians in New York uh, who have bad attitudes towards everything. It just has it, – it's like a – kind of delightful their their dynamic and just their sour attitude towards everything um is great so that is now streaming on hulu okay how about two listener recommendations i've got one from dylan who writes everyone should take a peek at we are the flesh well maybe not everyone certainly for mature cinema audiences with sinning on their mind this film knocked me out late one summer, recent summer eve, a Shutter exclusive whose library becomes more and more essential for horror fans with each passing day. The imagery and excitement that builds in this film will leave you exhilarated, but reaching for a cigarette. This film plays out like a modern day uh, Hodorowsky joint veering into some of the darkest regions of the mind. 
While this film does not operate with a direct narrative, its primary theme warms of the hell that we build for ourselves. Noe Hernandez's smirking grin will haunt you after the fluorescent glow leaves your 4K television set. This film continues the fantastic streak of dark-themed films coming from the Mexican film scene over the last decade, such as Miss Bala, uh, El Infierno, We Are What We Are, Desierto, and Sin Nombre. Uh, I think intrepid filmgoers will find much to peel away in this fantastic 80-minute journey into the inferno. Uh, Thank you for that, Dylan. It's a great recommendation. That is on Shudder. And I've got a recommendation from Robert in Austin, uh, who wrote this uh, after we'd done an episode on music docs. Uh, He writes, I would be remiss in not suggesting Andrew Dominic's 2016 movie One More Time with Feeling, now streaming on Amazon Prime. Ostensibly, it's a documentary chronicling the last days of the recording of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds album Skeleton Tree. But it's so much more than that. It's a stunning meditation on creativity, time, music, grief, and the great unknown. Cave is a fascinating subject, a cool man in black aging rock star with a gothic, romantic, and philosophical take on grappling with life's mysteries. It's compelling stuff to watch him uh, work his craft. But one more time's true motivation for existing appears quietly late in the film, and it's a gut punch I won't spoil here. Uh, by the way, just to be clear, I'm not a huge cave fan, but I think, like me, you will be after. I dig the music on its own, but as a metaphor for the film's themes, it's dazzling. And just as thrilling is, as its subject is Andrew Dominic's unique vision for the film, shooting in lush black and white 3D, yes, 3D, which was only available theatrically, he employs a staggering array of cinematic techniques and approaches. Uh, for my money, Dominic has made three knockouts in a row, Assassination of Jesse James, Killing Them Softly, and now this... Like them or not, and many don't, they are ambitious, one-of-a-kind works. Um, Thank you for that, Robert. That's also a really well-written recommendation. I didn't read all of it. Uh, Sorry to cut you down a bit, but it was all excellent. All right, and how about one film? My list? (laughs) You gave me number 15. That is The Devil's Candy. Uh, This is Australian director Sean Burns' follow-up to The Loved Ones which was a favorite on the genre fest circuit uh, a few years ago. This one is like a heavy metal centric horror film starring Ethan Embry as this painter who then gets maybe demonic inspiration. I don't know. It looks interesting. I've heard good things about it. Uh, The Devil's Candy, which is now on Netflix if you're interested. Matt, are you ready? Yes. Well, give me three new releases then. All right. First up on Netflix is one of the movies I think I have probably seen more than any other thanks to endless replays on HBO in the mid-90s. On the list of movies I have seen more than any other, you probably – I probably put – I don't know, probably Spaceballs number one, maybe Ghostbusters 2, Naked Gun. And then just below that would be Maverick, the big screen adaptation of a TV show I have still to this day never seen a single minute of, starring Mel Gibson at the height of his uh, post-lethal weapon stardom. I guess this could have been a vanity project, except I like it. Uh, Jodie Foster is also in it, and James Garner, who starred on Maverick, the original TV show Maverick, is in it as well. It is a comic western with a bunch of uh, card playing, poker is an important subplot. Uh, James Coburn actually is in it from Hudson Hawk as well. And Foster and Gibson are really good together. They have kind of an old school screwball comedy chemistry, like a little, I don't know, kind of Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn-ish. I haven't seen this movie in a while, but there was a period in that 90s era when I watched this movie 
almost once a week probably. You have to remember though this was before Netflix or YouTube, but I watched it a lot. I really liked that movie. So that's Maverick. It is available now on Hulu. Next up, also available on Hulu, is a uh, tiny indie movie that I saw and liked a few years ago at South by Southwest, Lovers of Hate. Um, It stars a pre-girls stardom, Alex Karpovsky. Um, He plays the brother of this guy, played by a really talented, fairly unknown character actor, Chris Dubeck. Um, uh, Dubeck's character gets tossed out of the house by his wife. Eventually, all three, the brothers and the wife, wind up together in this ski lodge. Complications ensue. This little, little movie, really mostly shot in like one place with, I have to imagine, no budget. But it really shows you what is possible with good writers and good actors uh, and basically nothing else. And uh, definitely if you're in the mood for that sort of um, small indie dark drama comedy thing, this would this is a good one. Lovers of Hate, available on Hulu. And finally, this I have not watched, but I saw it pop up on Netflix and I was like so fascinated that it existed and I didn't even know about it. And here it is on Netflix. It is The Saint. This is not the old TV show, The Saint. This is not the Val Kilmer movie, The Saint. This is a – it's listed as a 2017 film, Um, but it was made a couple of years ago as like a pilot for a series that ended up not getting picked up. And then all these years later, I guess the people who held the rights turned it into a movie and released it. I suppose, to video and to Netflix. So it's basically like Mulholland Drive, except um, I'm going to guess not quite as profound or strange and weird. Um, But it even has Roger Moore, who famously played the saint on the TV show, is in the film. Apparently it's his final film role. Uh, He is in the movie. He does not play Simon Templar, the saint, anymore. Um, Adam Rayner is the main character now, the main actor. Eliza Dushku is in this as well. And I haven't watched it yet, but I was just so strange that these things can exist uh, and you never even realize it and they kind of come and go quietly and then they wind up on Netflix, which is where you can now watch this strange sort of reboot of The Saint uh, on Netflix. All right. Give me two listener recommendations. The first one I have here is from Leslie Lewis, who writes, I ran out of surf movies, so I had to come up with a new summer film theme. Korea is in the news, so let's do that. The Pirates from director Lee Suk-hoon is my recommendation for the hot weather and beer list. In the film, buccaneers meet bandits to oppose the evil government in medieval Korea. Lots of action and good stunts with wry visual humor, strong female characters, and beautiful settings. This one joins the good, the bad, the weird as a top watch more than once movie. It is available on Netflix. So that's The Pirates. And that's a recommendation from Leslie. Thank you, Leslie. Next up, we have a recommendation from Peter in Centerville, Virginia, who writes, You can go on and tell me about how There Will Be Blood is the defining movie of this century. You can tell me Boogie Nights kept the mid-90s revolution in Arturo's cinema. But for my money, you cannot top Paul Thomas Anderson's messy and sprawling, indulgent and bonkers, Magnolia, which is currently available on Amazon Prime. Fair warning, it's not a light movie. At three hours and eight minutes, I can understand avoiding this overstuffed melodrama about abuse, self-destruction, reinvention, and happenstance told through Altman-esque interconnected threads across one Los Angeles afternoon, but the story machinations really are tangential to what make it such a pleasure. Put simply, Magnolia follows a cast of characters all dealing with the... pressures and pleasures of family and failure 
all associated with a game show pitting child prodigies against adults. But beyond that, really the movie is a masterwork of cinematic storytelling, alchemy, with some of the best performances PTA has ever showcased from a career of great performances. Even if you've heard about it all, how it all comes together in what can only be described as a storytelling device so biblically disproportionate to the human drama playing out, this movie will constantly surprise you and move you. So that's a very strong, very eloquent recommendation for Magnolia, which is available on Amazon Prime. And that is from Peter in Centerville, Virginia. Thank you, Peter. All right, give me one from your my list. You gave me number fifteen. I don't think I've we've done this one as a random my list pick this time. Maybe we have. It is Louis C.K. twenty seventeen. Louis C.K. muses on religion, eternal love, giving dogs drugs, email fights, teachers, and more, and a live performance from Washington D.C. Uh, is is it one special? Is it two specials? I don't even know. I guess it's one special. An hour I don't know. I don't know. It says an hour and 14 minutes. Uh, I have not seen all of Louis C.K.'s stand-up specials. I have not seen all of his his TV show. But, you know, I sometimes I find myself enjoying his work. So I, I think I must have put this on here when it was was added to Netflix. And have I have not watched it. And that is how it has drifted all the way down to number 15. But perhaps the next time I'm in the mood for some Louis C.K., I will, I will watch it. So, yeah, that's, that's my, my list pick this time. Louis C.K. 2017. All right. Let's get to our options for our next listener's choice. We've got three, uh, I guess, some recent, some brand new films that are uh, available online. Uh, I have the first pick here, and Allison already mentioned it. It is The Transfiguration which is available now on Netflix. Is that right, Allison? Currently available? That is correct. All right. So you can watch this one right now on Netflix. Uh, played at Cannes. Uh, you described what it's about. You, you can talk a little more about it, I suppose, because you have seen it. I have seen it. Yes. I won't say anything about it yet. Okay. But I will, I, here's the one thing I will say. I okay. think it feels – it has a really 19 – like a 90s indie feel. Mm-hmm. It has a kind of throwback indie feel to it. Mm. And it tries to tackle – the kind of vampire mythology in a different way. Okay. So we could talk about that. Maybe like indie movies that are kind of throwbacks to nineties indie, indie mm-hmm. classics. We could do, it sounds, I haven't seen it myself yet, but it sounds kind of post horror. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It sounds like we could do that. that as a theme, this sort of movement post horror being this sort of recent movement where people are taking sort of these classic tropes of horror and kind of imbuing them with some new life, making them a little artier or less overtly scary. Um, so that's another option we could do with that one. So that's option number one, The Transfiguration, which is available now on Netflix. Option number two is it also a film I've already mentioned. It is After the Storm, the Corey Adolf film, which is now streaming on uh, Amazon. That's uh, just like a, as I've said, like a wonderful film. I think it's just very kind of exemplary of what Koreeda does best. These these dramas um, in which so much is said in these family scenes of uh, families together. Uh, they're so kind of rich without needing to be explicit about all of the kind of emotional undercurrents uh, being. That, that are kind of running through them. Uh, yeah, and this one has a really good uh, Hiroshi Abe uh, in its lead as this, like, really kind of, like, great hangdog former charmer. 
and and it has Kieran Kiki, who uh, was also in Still Walking as the mother, and she's back as the mother here, and is like just heartbreaking. So I don't know. That might be a good time to take a look at uh, Correa's work, maybe, or to take a look at. Um, these uh, family dramas like this, ones that involve families kind of being tra- trapped together in one location mm. and forced to kind of talk things out, which I think is a, is a, is a particular genre uh, that spans multiple countries and cinemas. Mm-hmm. That's a good um, idea. I like that. Yeah. So that's your second pick. That's After the Storm, and that is on Amazon. Okay. I've, I've seen that movie. It's a, I think it's a really wonderful movie as well. So there's plenty to discuss there. All right. Option number three. I don't believe either of us have seen because it's not available yet, but it will be available on Netflix on August 25th. It is one of Netflix's biggest original films to date. It is Death Note. It is an adaptation of, I believe it was first a manga, a comic, and then, um, you know, I don't, I'm, assu- I'm going to assume, you can correct me mm. if I'm wrong, or our listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, that there was an anime version too. There, I yes, know there, I, I think it's on Hulu right I, now, actually. Okay, and I know there was a Japanese live-action version, because I've seen it. I actually saw it mm-hmm. at, uh, I think, the New York Asian Film Festival quite a few years ago. It was like a two-part mm-hmm. film, because they adapted like this massive uh, work into a very long and very interesting movie. Um, this movie, this American film, is directed by Adam Wingard, a director that I know we both like. He made Your Next and The Guest. His last film we might not have liked so much. That was the sort of uh, <laughs> reboot or sort of legacy sequel to uh, Blair Witch, which they sort of marketed under one name and then revealed it was something else. I believe basically the plot is essentially the same. This is I'm reading this off Wikipedia. In Seattle, a young man comes to possess a supernatural notebook, the Death Note, that grants him the power to kill any person simply by writing down their name on the pages. He then decides to use the notebook to kill criminals and change the world, but an enigmatic detective attempts to track him down and end his reign of terror. I mean, that is the premise of of the films that I saw. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah. we'll see how they. Ad- I think it's been it's been ported over to the U.S., so right. it has a U.S. setting now and right. and American actors. Right. Right. But the, the core premise sounds very, very similar. Nat mm-hmm. Wolf is the main character, the guy who finds the Death Note. And Keith Stanfield is in it, a really great actor. Willem Dafoe is uh, in the film, I guess, or his, his voice is anyway. He plays sort of – well, I don't want to give away too much for people who don't know Death Note, but he is important in the movie as well. Um, the film has been a little controversial before it even premiered because of the casting and allegations that perhaps this is in some ways a whitewashing of this very Japanese material. We could talk about that, I suppose, during the review. I'm not sure what else mm-hmm. we would talk about here as a Maybe theme. it's time to talk about anime. We could I talk, don't think we've ever done an anime episode. We could do anime. We could also do sort of like American adaptations of, of anime. That could be a thing oh, we could yeah. talk about it's as a, well. It's a glorious tradition. <laughs> Look, we did vanity projects. We have nowhere yeah, to go, yeah. but we have nowhere to go but up with that next episode, no matter yeah. what it is. So that is option number three: Death Note, the American, the new Netflix version of Death Note, which will be available on August twenty fifth. All right. Well, which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You tell us. You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, August 21st at noon. 
After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU, as well as on our Facebook page, uh, Facebook.com slash FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all of that time to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out on Tuesday, August 29th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of his work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer and follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions, both from you, the SVU listeners, and from ourselves, mostly Allison, but I get in there too sometimes as well recommending stuff we find uh, online. Don't forget to uh, leave us a a review on iTunes if you've never done that. Give us five stars, leave us a review. It is always helpful, it is always appreciated, and it definitely helps us to reach new listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 